0: Let's look now at our passage in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, and the second half of the chapter is what's assigned tonight. And I'm going to start just by reading the passage, starting in verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For I, began, for I for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Powerful passage and uh, one that really comes to the crux of the matter with regard to what the book is about. Uh, Here we have emphasized the great truth that we are justified, that we are made righteous by the work of Christ and not by our own work, not by the things that we do. That's what the book of Galatians is primarily about. That's that's really the theme that runs through the book. It's the primary message of Paul when he writes to the Galatians. The message that Paul writes in Galatians is not a different message than the one that he writes in Romans. It isn't different than what is taught in the rest of the New Testament. It's the same message: salvation by the grace of God through faith. This is the message that's given to us through God's word. Paul expounds a lot more about justification by faith in the book of Romans. Same message in Romans as in Galatians in that sense. Romans is written quite differently though. Romans is like a treatise that's written out. It's like a uh, a methodical description of the gospel message of all that is involved in it. He's speaking to uh, Christians in in Rome that he hasn't yet met, explaining to them the fundamentals of the gospel message. Galatians is written in a different way. It's the same message, but in Galatians, he's writing with fire in his heart. He's writing with a great burden. He has observed that there are those who have infiltrated the church, who have polluted them, as it were, with this false gospel, a gospel that isn't a gospel at all that we need to do something more than have faith in Christ to be saved. That there is God's grace, yes, but more is required. And, and this teaching has infiltrated the churches in Galatia, and he is sad about it. He is, he is burning with fervor about it. And so he writes Galatians, the book, the epistle to the Galatian churches with, with great zeal. My grandparents would say with fire in his bones. Well, perhaps some parents would say, with, with fire in his, his his stomach or something, or, or maybe we would say with fire in his heart. He's writing with zeal. He's writing with passion. And so it comes across very differently in the book of Galatians than it does in the book of Romans, but it's the same message, isn't it? It's a message that we are saved by grace through faith and not by the works of the flesh. And so um, we have this passionate appeal by Paul. And it's obvious that this false teaching has permeated the church. This false teaching is widespread. Uh, We can think about what's described here in this passage. We'll go through it little section by section at a time. But this idea that works are required in order for us to be justified, to be made right with God, is apparently a very pervasive and widespread problem in the church. It wasn't just the church, the churches in Galatia that were struggling with this issue. That comes out clearly in the passage that we're looking at tonight and in the passage that we read last night, last week. Last week, Brian took us through the first half of the chapter and we saw there that the church in Judea uh, struggled with this issue. The church in Jerusalem debated it and discussed it. Is it works that are required? Is salvation by grace enough? Paul refers to that in his argument now with the church in Galatia. But this, this problem was not just infecting the churches in Galatia or the church in Judea, but it was a struggle in the church in Antioch. I think we can see in the pages of the of the New Testament that it, it is a important theme throughout the New Testament. Obviously something that is impacting Christians around the world, around the dead known world and the Christian world at that time and in our day. I'll ask if you could turn that screen on and just look at some texts, if you would, that, that talk about justification by, by faith. The grace of God and not by works. It isn't just something that comes up in Galatians. It's taught in, in the Gospels. We aren't going to read all these verses. I'm going to put them up there. And you'll see that we can go through the entire New Testament. And this subject is a theme throughout the New Testament. I can give you these verses if you want. You can ask me and I'll send them to you. But look at them. i, I, I just picked some from various uh, of the epistles and, and and books in the in the new testament it's, it's taught in the gospels luke 7 for example it's taught in the book of acts justification is by faith it's by the grace of god it's not by works romans there's just one verse from romans you can look through there's justification is mentioned over 35 times in the book of romans <coughs> it's a major theme there first corinthians second corinthians ephesians Philippians, I skipped Galatians, we've got a verse we're going to look at here. Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. All of these passages speak about this truth, that justification is by the grace of God and not through our works. Hebrews, James even. we could take a message looking at the one in James, of course, because it speaks a lot more about works and faith. 1 Peter, 1 John. All through the pages of Scripture, we find these passages talking about the fact that we are saved by faith. So it's an important theme. We might say, Keith, I've heard this a hundred times. We know this well. We don't need to keep on about this. Thanks, Mother, if we can turn that off now. We, um, we often hear this, and you might say, we already know all this, Keith. Well, you've heard it a hundred times. We're going to hear it a hundred and one tonight because it's a major point in the word of God. It's a fundamental truth about our faith. We need to understand it and we need to know it. We need to be convicted about it. It was a problem in the church in Corinth. It was a problem in the church in Rome. It was a problem. Everywhere that Paul was writing, he's addressing this issue. Galatians is a little different than the other epistles in a number of ways, but one of them comes out in verse 2 of chapter 1 where Paul writes and says to all the brethren who are with me to the churches, plural in Galatia is the only book that is addressed that way to churches, plural. Most of the epistles are written to the saints or to the believers in a certain place. Corinthians and Thessalonians both first and second and first and second are written to the church in Corinth or to the church in Thessalonica. But here we have Galatia, which is a region, and Paul is writing to the churches, plural, that are in Galatia. Paul's taught throughout that area, and a number of churches were founded. And he writes now to those churches because evidently this is a problem, not just in one isolated locality, but throughout the churches of Galatia, as as we have seen, obviously, in other places. It's a big problem. Why is this problem so pervasive? I'm going to suggest to you that it continues to be a problem today, doesn't it? Is it not true that, that we can see among Christendom at large around the world that there continues to be this idea in people's mind that, that to be right with God, to get to heaven, you, you must do certain things. You must live a certain way. You must follow certain rules. You must accomplish certain goals. If you're good enough, you can be there. People continue to believe that today, despite what God's word says why is it that this is so pervasive then and now in our society i suppose there are a number of reasons but i'd suggest to you perhaps the biggest one is that somehow this idea is appealing to our minds we like to think about things that we can achieve things that we have earned we like people to and put it this way, get what's coming to them, both in a negative sense, but also in a positive sense, right? We like to think that if we've done well, we're going to be rewarded, and we like to think that we can do well. Isn't there a sense of pride in it? I believe that that's one of the reasons, perhaps the primary reason, that this continues to be so pervasive in our society today, around Christendom as large, not just in Christendom, but it is the basis of world's religions universally. That the way that we do well, the way that we move forward, the way that we have peace, the way that we have future is by obeying rules, by obeying laws, by doing things, by accomplishing things, by achieving things. And that's what religion in general was all about. It's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about the fact that Jesus Christ has done it. And we have righteousness in Jesus Christ and not by anything that we have done. Yes, we've heard it before. But it's important to hear it again and again and again. Because it continues to be a problem in the church and in our society and around the world that people continue to believe this. Think about verses 11 to 14, if we could. won't take time to reread them. But here we find, I I find this fascinating. We see the the passion in Paul's heart about this issue. Here we read the account of, of Paul confronting none other than Peter. He's going to describe to the churches in Galatia something that happened in the church of Antioch. I find this interesting. He's writing to the church in Galatia, and he has just described, last week we looked at it, discussions that took place in the church in Jerusalem. Now he's going to tell the churches in Galatia about an incident that happened in the church in Antioch. All of this support this issue, this position that he's putting forward. To reinforce the truth that justification is by grace through faith. So he confronts Peter in the church in Antioch. Peter comes to the church in Antioch. He's doing great work. He's teaching the word of God along with the many teachers who are there present in the church in Antioch. And um, and here's, here's Peter arrived. And I would imagine people would be delighted to know that Peter had come to visit Antioch. This is Peter one of the 12 apostles of the Lord, someone who walked with the Lord through the streets of Judea and Galilee and listened to the Lord for three years before he died on the cross. Peter comes to, comes to Antioch. And then some people come up from Jerusalem that James, the Lord's brother, has sent. I would imagine the church of Antioch would be Excited to receive them, to hear these esteemed brothers who had come from Jerusalem. But sadly, a strange thing happened. We read this expression in verse twelve, the end of verse twelve, that there was this group of of them that were those who were of the circumcision. In the, in the New King James Version, it puts it that way. In some translations of the circumcision party so to speak these were a group of people who had certain beliefs about jewish practices now last week brian talked a bit about circumcision and what it meant here there is this group referred to the group who are of the circumcision these were people who evidently not just taught that circumcision was required for you to be a believer but more than that, taught that he had to follow Jewish laws. It wasn't just about circumcision. It was about all of the Jewish laws that they held were required. It wasn't enough that faith in Christ, it wasn't enough that God's grace could work. We must also do something. We must also obey the Jewish laws. And one of them quite clearly had to do with eating, because it says that when they arrived, Peter would no longer eat with the Gentiles. And so we know that Jewish practice was that Jews weren't supposed to eat with Gentiles. I don't know how this played out. I can only imagine perhaps that their uh, dinners, which they held early church, seemed to hold weekly, maybe they started to separate so the Jews would sit over there and the Gentiles would sit over there. I'm not sure. I don't know how it played out, but clearly the Jewish believers stopped fellowshipping with, eating with the Gentile believers. You might look at that and think, wow, how could that happen? But it did. That's what was happening. There were those who held that you must obey Jewish rules and laws to be a believer. Peter got caught up in it, and even Barnabas, that leader of the church, got caught up in it. And so imagine the scene as Paul gets up in front of this group. And calls Peter out. Paul calling out Peter, the apostle of the Lord. I think the boldness of of Paul. Paul was a junior to Barnabas. Certainly he would be considered from a human standpoint as a, a junior to Peter, the apostle. But the Lord called him to be an apostle as well. And and he stood for the truth. And this was a fundamental truth that he knew was critically important and was causing division there in the church at Antioch, clearly. Paul calls him out and brings to his attention this problem. Notice the strong language that he uses. As he does so, he calls him verse 13, hypocrites. Hypocrisy. Twice in verse 13, the word is used. They were hypocrites in the sense that when these believers from Judea came, they changed their conduct. They were acting contrary to their inner convictions, contrary to what they really knew to be true. Strong language. He says in verse 14 that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Wow. It's quite an accusation. This term that's used, not straightforward, means they were inconsistent. They were variations between what they said and what they did. Teaching one thing one moment and something else the next. They were wavering. So there was this confrontation that happened. And we might think, well, whatever became of that? Is there a division here? You know I'm, I'm 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 delighted to know that whatever friction this might have generated at the time it was reconciled we know that because peter writes later in his life about his beloved brother paul in his book second peter chapter three it is clear that there was no lasting hard feelings or animosity here between them they were able to resolve the differences and the problems that existed between them. But here we have this confrontation. Let's look at verses 14 to 16 in particular. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to be Jews? He says, We who are of Gentiles by nature, knowing and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. I'm going to suggest that verse 16 is a key verse to this passage. We love to look at verse 20 in this passage in particular. It's such a wonderful verse. It's one of those verses you need to memorize and remember and recall frequently. But with regard to what Paul is writing about here, I'd suggest verse 16 is really the key. Verse 16 could be the key to the passage, perhaps the key to the book as a whole. Think about it. In verse 16, Paul really restates something three times. He says the same thing. Almost three times over, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, where he said it once, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law. He says it twice. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. He says it three times. Bang, bang, bang. It's obviously important. What does this word justified mean? I think we might have a good idea what it means, I'm not sure. Word justified means to render just or innocent, needs to be righteous or to be made right with God. So it means to be justified from a scriptural standpoint. We might think of it as being related to the word righteous. The word righteous is used in verse 21. And justified and righteous are similar in their meaning, but in the Greek they're very much similar. They're the same word, basically different forms of the same word. They're related to one another, and so this idea of being justified is being made righteous. And so we are made righteous not by the things that we do. We are made uh, just not by the things that we do. We have a right standing with God not by the things that we do, but by faith in Christ, by the grace of God. Um, I'm just going quickly. Verse 17 is difficult sometimes to, to understand, perhaps, but verse 17 says, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we are sal- ourselves are also found to be sinners, is that Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? What, what is he saying? What does this mean? <clears throat> does it mean that Christ is a minister of sin? Or that we ourselves are found to be sinners, Paul is saying here. I suggest to you that that if uh, there must have been an accusation against him here, that his position that we are justified solely by faith in Christ means that he is teaching that we're free to go on sinning. It's clear? That's not what he's saying. It, The truth is that our sins don't cancel our salvation. We don't need more than grace of God and the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We don't need to do these works. And they would point at Paul and say, well, if that's the case, you're saying we can just go on merrily sinning? doesn't matter. They would say, if that's true, Paul, then then Christ is an agent of, of sin. He's a minister of sin. Paul says, no, not at all. Not at all. Certainly not, he says. And then he turns the table on them in verse 18 and says, in fact, it's your position that is wrong. It it, it is you that are sinning by building again these things which we destroy. And now he turns to the personal pronoun, I. I build again those things that I destroyed. I make myself a transgressor. If I say that the law is not how we're saved, and then I start requiring people to be obedient to the law, I'm building again something that I've already destroyed, he says, and that's wrong. That's sin. We must not do that. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. I want you to look at verse 20. I'm going to put something else up on the screen if you could. Verse 20. And just this verse. Notice the seven personal pronouns here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me first observation i would make is that salvation is a personal thing the christian faith is a personal thing paul wasn't emphasizing these personal pronouns because he was trying to draw attention to himself I believe he was emphasizing it in this way to point out how salvation is a personal thing between ourselves and God. Salvation isn't something that happens en masse. Salvation is not handed out to nations or to communities. It isn't churches that are saved. It's individuals that are saved. The Lord looked out on the crowds and made compassion on the multitudes. When it come to their salvation, he dealt with them one by one, person by person. Paul understood this. And he knew that God's righteousness and God's justification had been applied to him personally, in a personal way. God deals with us as individuals. Second thing, I'd like you notice, is How often Paul speaks to us about being dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It seems that that Paul often speaks of dead as if they were alive and about the living as if they were dead. Here's a few examples, Romans 6 and 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Colossians 2. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of this world, why, as though you are living in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Colossians 3 and 3, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Writing to Timothy, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. I have been crucified with Christ. What does it mean? We've been crucified with Christ. In the immediate context, we could say that one of the things that it means here in verse 19 is that we have died to the law. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Crucified with Christ is to be dead to the law. We don't seek to gain our right standing by observance of the law. We are not depending on that observance for our justification. Second thing that we might understand this to mean is this, that means putting self to death and living completely for the Lord. Putting self to death and living for the Lord. The Lord said, on three occasions, or at least recorded three times in the Gospels, we should take up our cross and follow him. The Lord said, for example, in Matthew 16, take up your cross and follow me. What does he mean? Take up your cross and follow me. Some people look at those texts and they think that that means that, like the Lord, we have hardships that we have to endure and the difficult times that we have to go through. And I suppose that might be an application that we could consider I don't think that's the primary meaning of the verse, though. Pick up the cross and follow him means that we put self to death. We're not living for self. We're living for Christ. We follow him. Living for Christ. is not caring for acknowledgement of self not seeking compliments for self, not striving for attainments for self, but instead directing our energy and care to glorifying the Lord, crucified with Christ. It's hard to get to a point in our spiritual growth, I suggest to at least speaking personally, I can say this. It's hard to get to this point in our personal lives, in our personal growth, where we stop being affected and afflicted by the criticisms and comments and complaints that people level against us. <clears throat> it's going to be hard for us to do that if we have died to self. We ought to be more concerned about the comments and the criticisms and the complaints that people level against our Lord. Which bothers me more when somebody says bad things about me or when somebody says bad things about my Savior? Which impacts me more? Am I crucified with Christ? The insults and the wounds cannot impact somebody who is dead. Do they? Crucified with Christ thirdly means this. We're not just crucified with him, but we're also raised with him. We are raised with him. Our death is in order that we might have a better life, brought to newness of life. Crucified with him looks forward to that time when we will live. Christ lives in me, and I live in him. The death that we die anticipates a resurrection that is to come. And we will be raised with him. Raised to a better glory, a better future, a better body, a better mind, better hope, better godliness, more like our Savior, more like the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop there. Now, time has gone. Verse 21, I'll just read it to close. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Praise God, Christ did not die in vain. Christ died to bring us righteousness. Our righteousness is not through what we do. Our righteousness, our justification, our peace, our glory, our future, our hope is in Christ is what he has done here's the one